0: Are here. What's the bad news? He was torn apart! Get off his head, like a butt, man. The wages of sin is gonorrhea, syphilis, and death. I'm the Lord of the Harvest. Yeah, you know how much blood jets out of a guy's neck when his throat's just It's shut up!
1: Greetings listeners. These are your old pals, Mike and Tim, and we're back. We're back after our two-parter of Coffin Talk to our regularly scheduled podcast where we kind of break down uh, a certain amount of movies depending on what we're going with. And we have something very special in store considering that it's wintry out and uh, one of our favorite horror seasons is rolled in. We did do a Yuletide Fright Guide last year but we don't like to repeat ourselves. So we're going to do something a little different. The uh, anatomy of a franchise. Now, Tim, do you have any uh, any fun Christmassy puns to subtitle our anatomy of a franchise? Oh, gosh. I mean, uh, I could always go with Oh, Holy Fright. Um, That's good. Because <laughs> uh, I know we also, we talked about sleigh bells, but it's a play on words, so it doesn't work in audio format. Um, I I was just going to go under the the banner of ho-ho uh, homicide. <laughs> <laughs> that was me attempting. It didn't work. I had a, can you hear this? <laughs> yeah, that I do hear. <laughs> uh, okay.
2: I don't know if that'll work. And it's funny because when we were recording Thanksgiving and I picked that up and
1: looked at it, so Ooh. I knew immediately what the noise was. What it was, Yeah. Because, Tim, we are getting into a franchise that I feel is sorely overlooked most of the time. Um, Do you want to tell the listeners what franchise we're talking about? That franchise would be Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, yes. It's so much more than you're all thinking. I'll tell you right now. I mean, people that know the franchise, they're probably smiling because it is... A whacked out franchise. But people that don't know, you're thinking that we're just going to talk about a bunch of killer Santas, but we have way more things, such a wide gamut of bizarre shit to talk about tonight.
2: Yeah, I think anybody who hears Silent Night, Deadly Night and thinks of the entire series being only killer Santas probably didn't watch through the rest
1: of the series after like part two-ish. And that is what most of the merchandising, I mean smartly does center on the most bankable image. Yeah. Which is a killer Santa. Before we get into this, because this is gonna be a crazy episode. Um, how was your week, Tim? Uh, anything good, exciting happening?
2: Uh, all of my stuff, other than prepping for shows, seen as it's crunch time leading up into year-end stuff for our other shows plus this one, um, any of my movies have actually been non-horror lately. Uh, that we've snuck off to this theater to see. So I'll I'll bring those up outside because it's like the new Hunger Games, Mission Impossible,
1: all those Mm -hmm. things. Well, we're also going to get into um, our next episode is The Year in Fear. So Tim and I will be wall to wall uh, catching up and and trying to
2: to get everything
1: in. I did watch The Exorcist on Peacock.
2: Bless your heart. uh,
1: 48 hours ago. (laughs) And I have nothing to say you have to wait 2 weeks did but did you watch it or no no
2: not yet i okay. i intend to um because it's finally at a price i'd pay no like yeah. it's <laughs> it it's one that i figured i'd watch just because I don't want to necessarily go into the year in fair and just be like, here's all the movies that I wanted to watch. Uh, sure. You guys can figure your own stuff out. So it's still on the list. I'm going to watch it. I've actually, I've been sorting letterboxed just by like genre horror decade, 2023. And then just as I watch them and put them in the diary, they like yep. fade out. So this way I can like track all of my 2023 films left. Well, so. we
1: are dedicated to our listeners. So, Oftentimes, Tim and I will take one for the team and watch something maybe almost against our will. I was going to let Tim know that I would take Exorcist on as a solo uh, for the next episode. <laughs> if you have a lot of things to catch up on, you really uh, kind of I'm kind of spoiling this. I went in, thought ah oh, I should stop. I'm stopping. Tune in. Tune in in two weeks <laughs> to find out what I know I will. <laughs> But um, my week's been pretty decent. There was an iOS update that destroyed uh, my iPad, along with many people's iPads that had a power button, like a, a, the home button. Mm-hmm. So my suggestion to any listeners with, with an iPad that has a home button, turn your uh, automatic updates off, because that thing is full of glitches, and I had gigs left on my hard drive, but it didn't matter. So that wasn't good. What was good was that Christmas came early for me today, because it is a Tuesday in early December, and I have two amazing clients. Um, I have a lot of amazing clients, but particularly Jeremy and Sid. I was tattooing Jeremy today, and Kristen was tattooing Sid, and Jeremy was getting a gigantic Scream 6 uh, thigh piece, so I was super stoked about that. And they showed up with a smile And a surprise, and they said that their friend Anthony was stopping by. And this kid Anthony shows up. I never met him before. Really nice kid. He is holding two pizza boxes from Sally's Abitz on Worcester Street in New Haven. (laughs) So they set up a delivery of hands down the best pizza in the world, brought to me just for the hell of it. So it was a lovely day. And then here I am with you about to talk about a really great series of like holiday slashers. So, so it was a good
2: day. What you're saying is anybody disagrees that Sally's is the best New Haven-based <laughs> pizza, they now need to bring you modern, they need to bring you bar, they need to bring you... Uh,
1: I adore... Send
2: all of your pizza <laughs> submissions directly to the grindhouse.
1: <laughs> I adore pizza. And when you start talking about Worcester Street and outside of Worcester, basically New Haven pizza, it's all pretty damn delicious any of those up upper tier restaurants i will gladly eat a modern pizza or a bar or Peppies it's just for me it's sort of a a childhood thing it's just sally's has always been my go-to but they make an amazing pepperoni pizza in a coal-fired oven so will, any listeners that don't theme. live in hmm?
2: i was to say we'll find a themed episode where we can do like <laughs> something pizza
1: related we gotta be able to i mean there's a there's a moment in uh, in one of the Silent Nights that gets close because it's oddly surrounding spaghetti, which is similar to pizza in a few ways. But so should we crack into the these? I, it's just we're taking you guys on a wild ride. So you should definitely strap in and try and follow along. Yeah,
2: the uh, the platform we're going to be leaving from on this is not going to be where we return to because Silent Night I knew already going like for years watching these films that it gets off the rails, but then sitting down and watching them in succession in preparation for the show, I forgot how off the rails these get that at one point the series just turns into what you have an idea. Yeah, go for it. Does it have a Santa in it? Eh, tangentially.
1: Yeah. Is, is it a Christmas theme? We'll hang some shit on the walls. It'll work. Yeah. I'm looking at you four. Mm-hmm. um so yeah so silent night deadly night
2: the first one i think a lot of people whether they're fans of the series or not are definitely aware of it just because of its uh infamy of being one of the movies that i think it was ebert was it
1: was at the movies yeah at yeah the we're movies, gonna like, kind of give you shame. a bit of history on that right now like super quick because it's it's the one it's the only one in the series that was like truly controversial
2: yeah, because they had always reacted poorly to a lot of the slashers and a lot of the horror films. But this one specifically when when they went out of their way to, like, read off the names of all the people involved and just be like, this person, shame on you. That person, shame on you. There's no question in my mind that the showing of Santa with an axe on free TV and commercials is sick and sleazy and mean-spirited. So let's repeat the names of the people who did it. <laughs> TriStar Pictures, called by Columbia Pictures, CBS and home box office. Shame on you. Now, as for the film, I've got news for you. It's worse than the TV ad. Well,
1: what people need to take into account too is this is this is mid eighties, uh, nineteen eighty four, and like Tim mentioned, you know, slashers were already coming under fire big time. At this point, it was probably the worst year for a film like this to come out. You got to give the the producers credit. Like Silent Night, Deadly Night is an awesome title. And the poster image, which also bled over into the newspaper ads and everything, it was a, um, it was a chimney covered in, in snow with a Santa arm wearing the, the jacket holding a bloody axe going down the chimney. You could imagine that people weren't planning on their children seeing movie trailers on television of a killer Santa. And of course, the trailer really centered in on that. So you had kids that were scared shitless because they were airing these leading up into Christmas time. And a huge amount of parent teacher groups and religious groups and just general censorship assholes. They were going crazy, like picketing outside of the movie being played. They were trying to boycott different movie theaters and they were trying to like organize boycotts of newspapers and stuff. And to the best of my knowledge, what ended up happening was it came out in theaters, but I, th- it, cause they held to their guns on this. But I think after about two weeks, The production, like they kind of bent a knee and they pulled the movie eventually after a couple of weeks. But it made so much money in those two weeks that it was out. You know, they knew they had something good on their hands. Now, for people like Tim and I and anyone in our basic (laughs) decade, we know that it really found its life on home video because – Anyone could access it then. So it was a big deal. Yeah. But he's right. Like Siskel and Ebert, Gene Siskel, who hates horror movies, he said that anyone who goes to see this, they're giving blood money to, to these (laughs) deplorable human beings. And he basically plays Silent Night, Deadly Night as the most disgusting film ever made on tie with ice spit on your grave like he hated this movie
2: so let me repeat the names of the writer and director and producers of this film michael hickey wrote the film charles E. sellier jr directed it and ira richard Barmack produced it you people have nothing to be proud of even if you made a few bucks off of all the negative publicity your profits Truly our blood money. I'm glad you mentioned those people's names because quite frequently they think, gee, we'll make this exploitation film. We'll be able to buy our uh, Mercedes and live in Bel Air. and Nobody right. will ever know what we did. But I would like to hear them explain to their children and their grandchildren uh-huh. that it's only a movie.
1: And a certain child actor who became a pop icon, Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney stepped forward because there were a few celebrities. <laughs> yeah, and he wrote a like, protest but letter. He came forward and wrote a protest letter and just vilified this movie. And we're going to get back to Mickey Rooney a little later in a very interesting way. But that is the background in terms of uh, the controversy. Which, so The thing that I
2: find interesting and confusing about the whole controversy is silent night deadly night 1984 all of this going on the presentation of a santa killing people or person in the santa suit killing people and this on the cover 1980 we had christmas evil i don't know if at the time it was called terror in toyland but like we had christmas evil in 1980 that the cover is not just the arm going down the chimney but it's a full cartoon santa carrying an axe going down the chimney also a person in the Santa suit who goes on a killing spree, but for some reason, that one didn't get this level of vitriol that the other one did?
1: I think it had—it probably had to do with promotion.
0: The night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was staring, not even a mouse, the stockings were hung ah! by the chimney with care, ah! in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Remember, he only looks like Santa Claus. You've made it through Halloween. Now try and survive Christmas. Silent night. Deadly night. Rated R.
1: I don't think they had that for Christmas evil. I just think it really hit parents. Because parents don't want to deal with their kids being annoying. And if you have a child who's terrified of Santa coming, that kind of fucks up your whole holiday season. So I think that's what caused it. Which the thing
2: that, um, as far as, like, Christmas Evil, I we've mentioned it before, I feel like if this movie, granted, yes, I think this one is the meaner-spirited, this one is the, oh, the yeah. rougher around the edges, where Christmas Evil, if you get past, like, the concept and then watch the movie, it's, actually, it's not really so much a slasher movie as it just feels like a holiday-themed falling down um, right. of just this guy kind of losing
1: it over time, so... Yeah, it's way more psychological. Yeah. There's also a great British film. I mean, it, it's very exploitative and and like rough around the edges as well, but it's called Don't Open Till Christmas. And that's yeah. also a great, I give that like a, a definitely check it out if you're in the mood to, to go deeper and cast your net beyond Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, that's a fun movie to watch as well. And that involves a killer Santa.
2: Yeah, so I think what we're saying is Silent Night, Deadly Night, for all of the flack it got, was not the first movie no, to it wasn't. throw I mean, somebody in a Santa suit and just have people getting killed. I mean, even 1972 Tales from the Crypt yep. opening story has that. So by the time this came I think an evil around, Santa's
1: always been a thing. Yeah. I just don't think it was jammed in, in suburban people's faces the way that Silent Night, Deadly Night's promo team did. Oh, you know? yeah. Because, I mean,
2: Silent Night, Deadly Night approaches everything with no subtlety. It's a sledgehammer of a film. So the whole plot for anybody unfamiliar with Silent Night, Deadly Night, this will carry on for maybe two movies and then get thrown out the window. But it starts
1: with... We're going to surprise you guys and do each one as its own little capsulated piece. Yeah. Because that's the only way to do it. So we'll give you guys like an intro to the basics of each. And I truly do think that Silent Night, Deadly Night has, it has some, some, something to say. It does have, it isn't just, I feel like people that haven't seen it think it's just a killer Santa movie, but it is a rare bona fide slasher movie that actually takes the POV of the killer, not seeing through his eyes, like Michael Myers walking around or Billy from uh, black Christmas. It's, it's actually from the point of view of the killer and yeah. and all of the you usually meet your group of friends and you get whoever the final boy and girl may be and you follow through with them. But this film is all through Billy, your main character. So little Billy and his younger brother, they're driving with their parents, his parents to go see their grandfather. And it's the dad's dad. And he is sort of in a comatose state at a mental hospital uh, where he just stares off into nowhere. And you get a little moment in the car of the family having a very idyllic drive and talking about Santa and the kids all excited. And they get there and they talk to a couple of doctors. Doctor says, oh, you know, why don't you guys come with me? I'd like to, to speak with you privately. And they leave little Billy with the comatose grandfather, who miraculously and for no reason at all, snaps out of his coma, grabs the kid by the hand, and just starts saying to him, Santa Claus only brings presents to them that's been good all year.
0: All the naughty ones, he punishes. What about you, boy? You have been good all year?
1: You see Santa Claus tonight? You better run, boy. You better run. So this kid goes back to the car with his parents because the grandfather goes right into silent mode as soon as the parents walk back in the room. And on their way back home, now Billy's like, I don't want Santa to come. Santa's like, he punishes those that are bad. Oh, boy. Tim, what happens next? It's trauma layered on top of trauma. Yeah. So they end up
2: coming across a, a man in a Santa costume who they stop to assist. And when he walks over, they're talking to him. And then he ends up attacking the father, uh, who ends up falling out of the vehicle and ends up dying. And then he attacks the mother while Billy ends up running off and trying to get away. And he, he ends watches up his mom get
1: like her clothes ripped off. And yeah. And then, Santa like, raping her mom. And, yeah. It's fucking horrible. So...
2: He ends up watching all of this happening, and as we can probably tell, it uh, affects him emotionally, and uh, I think it might cause some problems later on in his life, because years later, we end up kind of jumping forward through this timeline. It's like time act two. There.
1: It's basically yeah. act one is when he's a little kid. Act two is, what, he's like maybe 11, 10 or yeah. 11 or something? So yeah, so as
2: Billy gets older, he ends up going with his brother to this Uh, convent school uh, with...
1: I guess it's like an orphanage. Yeah, like the orphanage. It's 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 like run by the nuns. Um,
2: So, it's very Blues Brothers. No, so he ends up there where he ends up learning from the Mother Superior that
0: When we do something naughty,
3: we are always caught. And then we are punished. Punishment is absolute. Punishment is necessary. Punishment is good.
0: Yes, Mother Superior.
2: uh, Very ham-fistedly, but like, you get the point of taking the moralistic integrity to the extremes, yeah. especially with him seeing the death of his parents and of a figure that is supposed to be beloved by people, and then naughty or nice. Like all of it makes sense on it slowly warping young Billy yeah. um, as he's and I feel going like the, through. The,
1: the scriptwriter has a bit of a bone to pick with like maybe Catholic guilt and all that stuff because it is there. It, yeah. it isn't just a mindless. I remember when I was young and I first saw this, I was expecting more of like a Jason in a, in a, you know, a Santa outfit, but it is more of like a exploitation drama because while Billy's there, Mother Superior, she chews the scenery and plays it to the hilt and she really is like a commanding presence and her voice is really cool and her performance is good. So you kind of feel really bad for Billy and his little brother, Ricky, because I mean, really, their parents got killed. Now you got this evil bitch who's like spanking you for doing nothing wrong. And obviously these kids went through trauma. So there is that there's one there's a beacon of hope at this place. There's the one nice nun. um, I think Sister Margaret is her name. And she sees that, like, these are nice kids that they don't act up. They're just kind of fucked up because of what happened. But the mother superior consistently wants to erase the reality and the history of these kids. She's always saying things to them like, like just you're fine. There's no problem. Stop misbehaving, that sort of thing. But he ends up peeping. It's not even his fault. He's going in one day to get his coat and he hears some, some moaning and groaning and he, and Billy peeps through a little uh, keyhole and he sees a nun getting it on with, I guess a priest or like maybe a worker at the orphanage. And of course, mother superior happens to walk by and see Billy looking and she beats the shit out of him, And then she also kind of like manhandles the, 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 the couple she's like, whacks them with her yeah. belt and shit. She's, she's really mean. Then what transpires? Cause this is like, you've already gotten two doses of the trauma that this kid goes through, but he ages out of, yeah. of the orphanage. And luckily, Sister Margaret
2: ends up getting him a job at a toy store of all places where he can work with the kids and help this kind of like mom and pop place uh, take care of all the the toys for Christmas time. And he, not the best place, probably, for a person who is recovering from the trauma of Santa Claus killing his parents. But
1: otherwise, we don't get the plot. But he seems to be doing OK. You know, he's... um. There's a really great montage with uh, this song that is ridiculous. It sounds like something from like a a TV sitcom that's playing in the background. And the montage is Billy smiling and being jovial and helping stock the shelves. And people are smiling at him and he's like enjoying himself. And then the first problem happens where it's like the guy that normally plays Santa is out sick and the temp agency can't find another guy who's available. So the mom and pop not realizing the past trauma of Billy's life, they're like, Hey kid, you're going to dress up as Santa and it's going to be great. And, and they, you know, the music cues are all very in your face because the film is very, like Tim mentioned, it's, it's kind of ham fisted, but it's, it does it across the board. Like everything is heightened a little bit. Yeah. So now we got Billy dressed up as Santa trying so fucking hard to keep it together. He doesn't want to go off the deep end, but now he's in the suit and he's having flashbacks. By the way, a little side note, the silent night, deadly night series loves flashbacks. And it starts with no. silent night one where there's actual flashbacks to Billy's mom, getting her shirt ripped off Probably three times there's a flashback to that in the same movie that you just saw it in. And I think, do you, Tim, do you remember the next thing that like pushes him? Um, I'm pretty sure it's when he witnesses that douchebag guy with the helmet hair and he's yeah. hitting on one of the girls at a Christmas party at the toy store.
2: Yeah, because if I recall, it starts off more so as Billy is severely coming as aid, or at least he feels like in this situation, it's not like he's off the deep end yet of kind of a, a spree. But yeah, so he ends up. Well, we're not going to give away all the the kills. There, but- there's a
1: there's a guy who's who's trying to make some moves on a girl who works at the toy store. This is they have a the hollow the, the uh, Christmas party. Like I was saying, so it's like kind of towards the end of the Christmas party, and the guy's getting handsy with this girl and yeah. billy starts as sort of a break it up hero type and then it just goes too far and he commits a murder all the walls of sanity just come dropping down around him
2: yeah because for the kind of the, the remainder of this is now when we talk about the that santa killing spree this starts to devolve into that of billy identifying all these people that he feels are have been naughty where the people that are unjust and he's just yeah. eliminating all of them, whether it's at the, the party at the toy store outside the toy store, um, as he kind of moves his way through town. And his mantra
1: is punish, punish. And it's as dumb as it sounds, it's but it remember. works because the third act becomes up like a straight up, excellent, entertaining slasher. I love the first two acts because it builds really nicely. Yeah. But it does deliver to all the people wanting to see Billy in a Santa Claus suit, killing people in really creative ways. And you get that. You get uh, Linnea Quigley, who's known mm-hmm. as trash from from uh, Return of the Living Dead and many, many other things. She goes out in probably one of the most infamous 80s slasher kills. Like, I've... I, I know that's high up on people's lists. It involves antlers and a wall-mounted uh, deer head and a dead person. So you, you could put two and two yeah, gonna because there's
2: now. not a lot of things you can do with that combination. So yeah. um, I know we don't want to necessarily give away all the, the kills of this. You should go watch Silent Night, Deadly Night. But I think this is Billy's descent into madness and all of the the lead up to it. Yeah. I think it's set up well in Silent Night, Deadly Night, even though it's done in kind of a ridiculous way overall. It's, cor-
1: it's corny, but it's comforting. Yeah. It has that, I don't know, I feel like when you watch it, I would actually mentioned Jeremy and Sid and Anthony. They all love horror movies, and they never, they never actually saw this one. They knew about it, but never saw it. And they watched it today while they were getting tattooed, and they loved it. Because it, I think it is a nice mix, and they kind of play on this generational trauma thing. The movie ends in a way where it's setting up a sequel, but in a generational trauma way, and and it kind of it does build suspense. It it never reaches real suspense because yeah. it is corny. It's like heightened melodrama. Yeah, dramatic. like a melodramatic. Yeah. Dis- yeah. But I, I have no problem saying that. Of the entire series, I I think Silent Night, Deadly Night from 84, it is my favorite film of the series. Not to say that there aren't some contenders that that are coming up, but I do love Silent Night, Deadly Night. I see, Mike, in terms of the Silent Night, Deadly Night films,
2: I actually think I prefer part two. (laughs) because of the oh, raw efficiency the efficiency <laughs> it's the respect for my time of saying you know what we know that you want to watch a movie do you want to watch two movies in the next 90 minutes because Silent Night Deadly Night Part 2 is essentially a clip film of Silent Night Deadly Night 1 followed by the back half of the actual film of Part 2 Silent Night Deadly Night Part 2 us back and he's mighty miffed at the naughty nun who drove his demented brother on a murderous rampage that made headlines across the country. Now, step by step, weapon by weapon, victim by victim, Santa's gonna finish what his brother started. So you better watch out, you better not pout, because Santa Claus is coming to your town, and he knows who's been naughty.
0: And who's been nice. Hold on tight for the sequel that'll chill you through your very
1: soul. Silent night, deadly night part two. Yeah. I was going to lead into this by uh just riffing. And I was going to say like, Hey Tim, uh, you ever like want to watch, I don't know, nightmare on Elm street, but you might want to watch nightmare on Elm street too, <laughs> but you can't decide if you want to watch two or three dream warriors. Silent night, deadly night is the only franchise that you actually can have your cake and eat it too yeah. by watching just Silent Night Deadly Night part 2 first if you've never seen any of it. I mean it's it's <clears throat> such a bold idea. So the this film opens 40 with, minutes of
2: flashbacks with Billy's younger brother Ricky <laughs> um at this uh ward and he's talking with this doctor who's uh while well, he's committed there he's going through and explaining like asking about his history and his past and his relationship with his brother and Ricky is sitting there and telling him the story of everything that happened in the first movie so we're getting these constant flashbacks yeah. of just like a greatest hits of everything that happened for all the story beats in part 1 part part 1
1: ends on a a, a not really excellent cliffhanger with Ricky but but it's enough yeah and they certainly were smart with picking this up. When it opened, Tim, like I remember when I first saw it, and it opened with, you know, um younger brother Ricky being in that institution. I was like, "Ah, oh, that's cool. Like th- this 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 will be cool. Yeah. It's like a continuation." And then like Tim said, you get your first flashback because it's a doctor talking to the actor's name is Eric Freeman. And holy fuck, this dude is a masterclass in bad acting. He's so committed to it that he actually transcends bad acting into something almost ingenious. Like, like his, some eyebrow, sort of movements, oh, his <laughs> eyebrow movements never stop. He punctuates every word with an eyebrow movement. And he is the ultimate... Angry, jaded fuck when talking to this doctor, the doctor can have an exchange with him where he's just like,
2: my name is Dr. Bloom. You can call me Henry. Or if you would feel more comfortable, you can just call me Doc. Fuck off, Doc. Do you dream, Ricky? I don't sleep.
1: And like, that's his response. And their entire relationship is just him berating the doctor and the yeah. doctor just taking a breath and continuing onward. But you're right. It's just a little punctuation. It's a little lead in for an excuse for another flashback.
2: Yeah. Cause all of this stuff for the, as Mike said, the first 40 minutes is a condensed version of part one. So, I mean, if you never saw part one and you really just wanted to jump into part two and you don't have the time, you will get all the story beats in part two for part one. And for Um,
1: people that don't, know this film tim and i are not talking about these quick little flashbacks where you see a moment and then it jumps back to the new footage we're talking about the intro to a new flashback and then a solid uninterrupted eight to ten minute sequence (laughs) of the movie of the first film it's just these long stretches one scene leads into another scene and then another scene. And you're like, when are we getting back to Ricky? What the fuck is going on? And you have to basically do this for 40 minutes of the movie. I still think that you should definitely watch Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, absolutely. Um, because for a long time, the gore w- was heavily cut in the first movie. And if you pick up any of the Scream factory editions of Silent Night, Deadly Night, the first one, you actually get for the first time in decades the uncut version. And it's really great to see all these extra prosthetic gore effects. And there's also extras on that disc, like um, an entire collection of photographs of the handwritten complaints sent in about the movie that you can read. And there's also screenshots of the comment cards on the, um, I think on the screener, where they would have a, a test audience. Yeah. So it's really worth owning. If you're going to buy one of these movies on Blu-ray, you should definitely own Silent Night, Deadly Night, because it's great. I say own them all. But, um, but yeah, back to Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2.
2: So we finally finish with the flashback of Ricky leading up, and we finally, finally start getting into Ricky's story of talking about the things that happened to him as he starts going through the... Oh, the after I recovered and uh, after everything that happened with my brother and how he was also at the orphanage and how he moved on. He was like working a job and he was ended up meeting people and finding himself a girl and all this stuff. But I think in the second movie, all of the characters that Ricky encounters are all of these like obvious, exaggerated caricatures that it's, well, that guy's definitely going to get killed because- It's, it almost like is a more, I don't know, like black comedy version of the first one that it's not focused on necessarily the descent into madness of Billy. It's focused entirely on look what Ricky's about to do to this guy. Yeah, we
1: should be abundantly clear. Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 is fucking awesome. It's, it's an awesome movie. When it becomes its own movie, it's so fun and there's so much cool shit in it. It's just a shame that so much of the beginning is the first film because it really kind of ruins the ability to do, like, a deep dive marathon. Because if you watch it in order, you watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, and then you kind of have to watch the movie again before you get to that last 35, 40 minutes of the movie. But it's worth doing.
2: It is. Yeah, and it's not like you can just skip through the first 40 minutes because, unfortunately, like – the parts where they cut into Ricky and this um, doctor talking back and forth, like, those parts are worthwhile. It's just difficult to kind of pull that out from all the other flashback clips. Yeah.
1: And neither movie, I mean, I don't think either of them are over, like, an hour and a half. Uh, um, no, I, I, I don't I, think so. I really don't think they are. They don't feel like they are. Yeah, you basically watch them together and it's just one three-hour movie. But... You're never going to see... Everyone knows Garbage Day that has seen this film. It's become like its own meme thing and all that. Garbage Day is something that a completely derailed Ricky yells at someone who is taking out the garbage when he's in the middle of one of his his killing sprees and he just exp- expresses Garbage Day very loudly yeah. and shoots a guy for no reason.
0: Garbage Day! Huh? No! Ah!
2: Yeah, I mean, even the cover of this movie is literally the Christmas ornament with just a reflection of a man holding a pistol. Yeah. Uh, it, it's got to be in reference to Garbage Day. Yeah, and it's like, it's a slasher movie. If at some point the slasher just is like, oh, I found a pistol, and then just uses a pistol for the next like seven kills. So it's it's all over the place. It's more heightened compared to the first one. But I think Silent Night and Deadly Night Part 2 is still definitely worth the watch just to complete the all of the things you've heard about over the years. And it
1: is the most fun. Like if you're hanging out with a bunch of friends and none of them have seen the series at all, I would actually say Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 is probably the most fun party movie to throw on. Oh,
2: absolutely. Um,
1: Because in addition to Garbage Day no one ever mentions like it's the only movie I've ever seen where someone gets stabbed with a fucking umbrella and then the umbrella gets opened <laughs> after it goes through them. And there's also a really crazy like battery jumper cable kill yeah. that that is off the charts. Hilarious. And it's sort of um, this series plays a lot with the meta elements of its own series. And there's a moment where Ricky goes on a date and I have no idea how anyone could date this guy. But they go on a date to a movie and he's his typical grumpy self. He's all whiny and bitchy at this movie. He doesn't want to be there. And they're watching Silent Night, Deadly Night on the screen. And as the Santa starts killing people, Ricky's all like, oh, I could get into this. This is kind of cool. And in the background, there's a guy that won't shut up. During the film, he's talking through the movie and Ricky gets so perturbed that he goes and kills him in the movie theater. It's that kind of fun. That's the shit that you're in for when you watch this movie. Which
2: it sets off this weird like chain of events where the second they're watching the first, I think they're in the third. I think they are watching a clip from the second. That's definitely the 4th is watching the 3rd and the 5th is watching the 4th so it's like yeah. it changes itself throughout the rest of them which becomes such a weird thing to explain like metatextually Truly. of wait a second so that means there's characters from this movie that were in the last movie but somehow they're watching themselves on tv yeah. so it don't think too hard about it and just and enjoy see it. Ju-
1: just when you thought that the crew the casting crew and everybody that they're like sticklers for continuity from the way we're explaining this with these meta introductions of each film within the film. Continuity goes right out the fucking window when we're introduced to Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out, directed by a guy named Monty Hellman.
0: Enter a world of dreams. (sighs) Laura, tell me what you saw in your dream.
1: I told you, Dr.
0: Newberry. Santa Claus. A world of silence. Subject may be making contact. I don't want to see the future or the past. I just want to be normal. A world of madness. No one is
2: normal. A Yuletide Terror returns with the saga that shocked a nation. (gasps) Robert Culp. Silent Night. Deadly Night. Part 3. Better Watch Out.
1: And I have no problem saying that, uh, you know, this is my least, this is my personal least favorite of the of the film. He did work on The Terror, the Roger Corman film, The Terror. Mm-hmm. And it's very odd because The Terror is actually being played on a TV screen in the gas station of this movie. Um, so there's a weird little tie-in to that. But, holy fuck. Tim, like... How do we explain this one? Like,
2: how? So this movie is where they start to get into the, oh, it's a slasher movie. But what if it was like a supernatural slasher movie? Because they start getting into this like 80, maybe it was just a really big 80s trend between this, uh, was it New Blood phenomena? But it was like, what if we do a slasher movie where he's tracking a girl who is also clairvoyant to an extent? Because this is Ricky has survived because he's being um, experimented on by a doctor who has this kind of like contraption on his head with an exposed brain. And it's like pumping all of this stuff into him. But we actually have Bill Moseley coming in as Ricky in this movie, uh, which unfortunately it's kind of a a very silent, non-fun Bill Moseley role just because I'm so used to him. As all of his other characters of like Chop Top or his any of the ones in the Rob Zombie films of him
1: being more talkative and being a little bit more wild. That's a great way of Tim, Tim expressing that Bill Moseley is wasted in this role. Yes, he he delivers fine, but his abilities are just squandered with what he's given.
2: Yeah, like it's disappointing to take like a muscle car out of the garage and then use it to just like drive to the supermarket So that's like Bill Moseley in this film, at least, because most of the time it's spent of him just tracking down this uh, the clairvoyant girl, Laura, and it's her brother and his girlfriend who's going to their grandmother's house for Christmas Eve. Um, And along the way, they get there. The grandmother isn't there. They're getting the house ready. But Ricky is following and trying to get to this house and is going after Laura seeing as she has some sort of psychic connection with him Um, so it's this clairvoyant blind character who is trying to navigate the home and defend them against Ricky Um, it becomes a lot of different it's like a melting pot of a bunch of different things that I've seen in other movies throughout the 80s all boiling
1: into this my problem I I guess All of these films have pros and cons. And my problem with Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 is that it opens, and I mean the opening, Tim, it opens so promisingly because it does feel kind of like an Argento era, almost like phenomena. I mean, fuck the lead, um, Laura. I don't remember what the actress is. Oh, Sam Scully. She even looks like Jennifer Connelly. She's very similar looking. And you get this great chase scene in like a completely white hospital. And she's like running all over the place and, down these halls. And then you get this like blood soaked Bill Mosley, like standing in the hallway. Yeah. And he has like the clear salad bowl on his head. The brain that's exposed <laughs> is three times the size of a human brain. And it's ridiculous looking. It's got like an antenna on top. There's just no reason for it. But that opening Tim, when she turns the corner it's then it uh, it's like an old Saint Nick and he's sitting like Odin in that throne <laughs> of Christmas shit. And he like pulls this knife on her. She like sits on his lap and he she's telling him the stuff she wants for Christmas. And then he pulls a knife on her and she screams. And I was like, whoa, this is going to be fucking good. But that's just a dream because then like she wakes up. Yeah. And she's actually blind because her parents died in a in a plane accident, and they kind of claim that, that that's why she lost her sight, I guess. But her grandmother's telekinetic or, or ESP psychic and so is yeah. she. And like Tim was explaining before, that's where all this like like mumbo jumbo psycho babble shit starts getting introduced, but they don't really they don't do anything with it because it's not as like exciting and experimental seeming the, like the way the beginning you think you're going to be in for like a wild ride and you've got Bill Moseley with his brain exposed. Like, yeah. but it doesn't, it just gets real normal. Like I love certain things in this movie. Like when you meet, when you meet Laura's brother, he, he looks like a throwback to like, Michael Hutchins from NXS. Like he's ridiculous looking <laughs> and he's got this like sexy brunette girlfriend and they don't, the girls don't get along and, and there's promise there. There's like stuff there. I don't find it to be hard to watch. Like anytime I catch this movie, I don't mind it, Yeah, but it doesn't go as far as it should with its premise because you just have a shambling mute performance In this really bizarre way, Robert Culp, who's an older actor, he was like in his golden years, he plays a lieutenant. And I feel like only one motherfucker in this movie knows the ridiculous tone of what this movie is. It's playing itself straight. Everyone (laughs) is taking this fucking movie seriously. But when... I know that when I just know that when Robert Culp read the script, he was like, oh, my God, OK, I'm going to come in and deliver a performance. And it's a hammy, wonderful yeah, performance. It's such
2: a different movie when um the doctor and the lieutenant are driving in the car and they're like, we have to go find Ricky. He's going to be going like wherever it is. And as the, he's there using his mobile telephone in his car and he's explaining yeah, Is that his side like, gig? Yeah. Is and his side gig like he yeah. sells mobile phone well, plans? Yeah. So he's explaining like, oh, it's actually, you should get one too. Cause it can do this <laughs> yeah. and this and this. And That's what I said. But well, once you get one, you'll never know how you did without it. You know, you got call registry and call waiting, call forwarding, hundred memory auto dialer. You got a stick? well if you drive a stick shift you need the hands-free option that that's a must sounds like you have a uh, financial stake in these hazardous toys well i do get a 100 bucks off my cellular bill for every new sign up and it's such a <laughs> yeah. weird scene to fit <laughs> into the middle of this but it's like if they kept that energy throughout the rest of this i think it would yeah. be a lot more fun because like you said it's not that it's bad I think it's just there was potential there to be more interesting than it is, and it just ends up being kind of there.
1: Yeah, to to really solidify what I what I mean to listeners that might not have a, a barometer here, the Robert Culp character, the lieutenant, everyone knows like James Karen's role from *Return of the Living Dead*. Imagine if James Caron was was playing his role from, from Return of the Living Dead, but in a zombie movie that was taking itself seriously, he'd stand out like a sore thumb, yeah. and that's the way Robert Colt plays, and it's very breezy and goofy and dialed up to, like, 12, and everyone else is trying to be, like, a serious thespian, and they're trying to, like, act correctly, you know, and, and present yeah. themselves, but the material... It's a fun watch. It's got a couple good gore scenes and a few like cool camera angles and stuff like that. I think Tim and I also forgot to mention that once uh, the first two films were released theatrically and all of the ones from this point on were direct to video. And it's a smart play for them because the movies, the first two did amazingly well on video. So these next ones in the series are all direct to video releases and I think if you get them on on the Blu-ray release, because there's a beautiful cheap box set of yeah. three, four, and five together. And it's really not a lot of money. I think it's like 30 bucks. Yeah. Uh, they're presented in, in like a, a full frame square, but I truly think that those are what they call open mat, where you would you would take that and put your bars on to make it widescreen. So it doesn't feel cramped. There's enough headroom. It's it was framed to shoot that way. Because they, they filmed it to put on video. So when you watch these, you're going to get a square screen, not a rectangular one. But it, but it, it's not, I think it's intentional. It, you're not missing anything, really. So yeah, Sorry this is where we, a little. this is where we,
2: well, I mean, speaking of getting off the rails, this is where we really start to kind of lose it in the series in terms of the, the wackiness of it. I mean, while e-
1: we're on this topic, what's your least favorite? I'm just ah, trying to figure out which one you enjoy the least. My least favorite is four. Oh, is four. Yeah. Okay.
2: I think it's because, which we'll get into it next. I think it's because I don't mind four feeling completely out of place with everything, but I think in terms of what it's doing itself, I'm just kind of lukewarm on it. The three kicks off the weirdness, and especially at the end of three, when i some random just like oh we're gonna take bill mosley and put him in like a dinner jacket with a martini like he's in the shining and then just throw him on the screen for just wishing everybody a happy new year and then it's just yeah. the movie ends and it's like okay so from that point forward it's gonna get really weird for the rest of this because well, what is sil- four?
1: silent night four I will introduce this one since I think I like it more than you. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Silent Night 4, Initiation. A bizarre event. Please continue to investigate the bizarre suicide. An inexplicable phenomenon. No idea.
0: They said they know nothing about it. This would make a great story. For her, it was the chance of A lifetime. I work for the LAI. I'm an investigative reporter. There's got to be some logical explanation for the burning. But some questions... Get away from me! Leave me alone! ...are better left unanswered. What happened? Are you all right? Ah! The woman who jumped. She was my daughter. But now you've come to take her place. Make oh. your fear real. Get it out. It's the night you've been waiting for. Me. Please, me. Kill the man. <laughs> woman the night
2: you've been screaming for it is the final
0: step
2: silent night deadly night for initiation you're one of us
0: now join the club
1: directed by brian usna who uh tim and i love oh, because yeah. he major player in the reanimator movies he made um Dagon, he made Mm -hmm. Society, he made um, a lot of different films. I'm forgetting uh, From Beyond. Mm -hmm. Um, He was connected to that. This film, it opens with a vagrant played by Clint Howard, who is amazing, Mm -hmm. and he is eating a hamburger out of a garbage can and he's angry. He's angry that there's no fucking cheese on it. That is what he yells. Seconds later, a woman who happens to be half on fire from her waist down is on fire. She dives off of a building and then it just jump cuts to a gratuitous sex scene. And then we meet Reggie Bannister from fucking Phantasm. And he plays this guy, Eli, who's an editor, which is uh, where your main characters, they work for a newspaper. All of this, Tim, is in the first three minutes. I mean, to me, that's setting me up for for entertainment. And, I mean, really, it's, I don't know, like, the movie makes no sense. I'm with you on that. Oh, yeah. So what what goes on from there?
2: So the reporter, played by Neith Hunter Kim, decides she's going to get into trying to investigate the... Uh, weird, odd death that happened to this other woman who just spontaneously combust. And naturally, the newsroom being kind of a boys club, uh, she's told, go make us the coffee and just stay out of all of this. So naturally, she's kind of like going rogue, investigating
1: all of this. The sexism is is thrown so thick yeah. in, in this. She's dating... Um, another like, like a seasoned reporter there this dude named hank yeah <laughs> and hank dude like i have to comment on this when i when i watched this movie all i could see is like hank looks like a low-rent marlon brando kind of crossed with a matrix vibe as if david rose threw out some clothes that were out of style from Shit's creek and this dude put them on because the outfits this guy wears are hysterical, including this one black sweater outfit. That is, it's just you can't stop laughing every moment that he's on screen. He's an absolute goofball, and he he starts out as an asshole, but then you know he he kind of has a bit of a a bit of a turn midway through the movie. But um, he gets the job, and he doesn't even want it. So, like Tim said, she goes out on her own, meets FEMA, the bookstore lady. Yeah, which she starts
2: investigating. She ends up kind of getting connected to uh, FEMA, played by Maud Adams, and becomes friends with her as she's getting information. Who she runs this kind of uh, was it like this bookstore, but it's kind of like a little bit of a hippy dippy bookstore, a little bit of like a mystical leanings um, of her and all of the her friends and staff that work there.
1: So, Tim, did you get a feeling that like this film starts? becoming like an alternate reality version of society but almost as if it was Cronenberg directing a David Lynch story so it's like Twin Peaks it it feels like yeah. Twin Peaks to me as if directed by Cronenberg because the the lady that she meets Fema it's all about symbols and she pushes a book on her that's all about Lilith and and the the woman, the goddess of crawling things. And it starts getting buggy. And yeah. she invites her to this like picnic. It's almost like a low rent, not very, not very well thought out hereditary. I was just like, about there's to all, say feels, yeah. There's like these weird. <laughs> it
2: feels like gooey hereditary.
1: Yeah, like a Cronenberg hereditary, but with a very heavy hand. There's no subtlety yeah. in this film at all. But you start meeting these, like, Lynchian characters where uh, the Butcher is this guy who just speaks broken English. He's this big, giant dude, and he's got blood all over his hands, and he lives below the—in the lower— part of the apartment where the lady jumped to her death, you end up seeing a chalk line of a fucking dead body of where the woman was. And it's only chalked for the upper part of the body. And then where the, the legs would be, there's, there's no chalk. It's just scorched. And, uh, and this guy, he's, like, telling her that ladies are whores and that she was probably a whore with no reason. He just says it to her. And she's like, okay, thanks. And there's a peanut situation where she can't get peanuts out of this uh, vending machine. So he punches it and, like, karate chops it. And, and the peanuts come out and they're covered in his blood, the blood that was on his hands. You're winning me there's, over. You're winning me over on this one. Yeah. I, it's just, I, I mean... I'm surprised that it's your least favorite just because I think it's so bombastic that I can't help but enjoy it. Because in a matter of minutes, she's in her apartment with the book the lady forced her to take. And she's looking at this symbol that's in the book. And she pan- the camera pans over to the spaghetti she's eating. And the spaghetti is arranged in the plate in the same way <laughs> as the symbol. And then there's bugs coming out of things. Uh, I think at the 15 minute mark, Clint Howard reaches into a, a an air vent on the top of the apartment complex and pulls out a giant mutated maggot, courtesy of of Screaming Mad George, who's given us everything from oh, yeah, the which effects for Society to uh, creatures that were in big trouble. Little China. There's a lot to love in this fucked up mess of a movie. It is a mess. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. I think
2: my my issue with it that didn't end up making it higher on my list in the series is because I like the things that it's doing, but it feels like a half measure. Like, it feels like there's yeah. something missing to bridge some of these scenes other than, okay, so we start getting kind of, as the name of the movie is, uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, The Initiation. Once she starts getting initiated, it feels very quick from there on out that it's like we get a couple right. kind of good Screaming Mad George effects, but we don't get a lot of plot. It's just kind of a, the rehashed yeah. feeling for the last half, which I, I like everything they're doing. I just wish they had more breathing room on it.
1: I agree with you 1000%. It feels like it's missing so many bits of connective tissue. That's why what I was saying that it's it lacks subtlety. It really does lack subtlety, but I mean, all in all, in one hour and a half, you you get rat sacrifices and <laughs> you get a regurgitated mutant centipede sequence that's also punctuated by like, tons of extra strength hair gel dripping out of everything that's not even including the birth sequence that i'm not even gonna get to right now like maybe we'll save that for when you watch the movie i don't want to ruin it for people that have yeah. no idea what they're in for um you get hank wearing a hilariously oversized uh like Twas the night before christmas night shirt <laughs> <laughs> and somehow he gets laid in this nightshirt, which is which also tim I, I have to keep defending this film. That sex scene leads to the most epic cock block in cinema history, and that is Clint Howard walking into a room while you're having sex with a with a gorgeous redhead sitting on the end of the bed in the middle of your sex act, and he just starts watching TV and then they have a fight. Where Clint Howard bites Hank's Achilles tendon, like bites it off his fucking leg to me, that's like never mind that there's a pre climax climax, not sexual, but there's this climax in um it's in like a meat locker, and it involves like putting these mutant insects into someone's stomach. And then the girls' fingers start twisting and wrapping around one another. Which is super society. I mean, I feel like the finger meld sequence is worth the price of watching it. Just that. And that's not even like the bigger climax because there is another one that involves like Kidnapping children. Let's not forget an anti-Semitic dad in one of the weirdest sequences ever where he just goes off on her for being Jewish. There's no reason. It's just there. I don't know. Like, I love the the audaciousness of this film. And I just think that when you think about the amount of movies from the 80s and the early 90s, this is 1990, a lot of lesser films as far as delivering on weirdness, a lot of lesser films have way more recognition and barely anyone that is a died in the wool horror fan is ever like, Oh, you know what? Initiation is a fucking crazy movie. You just don't hear enough people mention yeah. it. And it has faults. I am. I'm so in Tim's camp on this where it's a mess of a film, but man, with a little bit of tightening and if they played a few things a bit more logically, like in a in a way that would flow better, I think you'd have like a classic, like a 90s classic. Oh, and yeah. Instead, it's like just it's it it's so close, but it's not there. But I doubt anyone will be bored. I'll tell yeah. you that much.
2: And you um, get to watch Clint Howard watch Silent Night, Deadly Night 3 on TV.
1: Yeah. And before we get to the next one, am I crazy or is Maude Adams, is that her name? Is that the- who's Oh, the, the one who red, plays FEMA? No, the red-haired lady.
2: Yeah, Neith Hunter, who plays Kim. Neith so Hunter, the, she's yeah. in both films. Yeah, so Neith Hunter yeah.
1: actually, in
2: so Silent Night Deadly Night 4, Neith Hunter plays the main character, Kim, the reporter. She plays Kim again in 5. She's but- like
1: a red-haired Sherilyn Fenn, which is another weird, like, Twin Peaks connection. She kind of looks like her. Cause then the, the weird thing is in
2: five. So when she runs off with the the child, and from four, they never really directly. It's not a a continuation. It just happens like Silent Night, Deadly Night, Five, the Toy Maker she's just a neighbor who's in it with the kid. Yeah, But she has a kid that could be that kid. Like, Oh yeah. They even have, they both have the same names. Right. And then she even talks about it at one point, cause Silent Night Deadly Night 5, the toy maker is following uh, another woman and her son. And the son sees his father get killed by a toy when he's young and he ends up um, becoming non-verbally doesn't speak anymore. He is too traumatized. But the neighbor next door is played by Neith Hunter as Kim again with her son, Lonnie. And she even explains like, well, yeah, it's sometimes trauma will do that to kids. Like, I've certainly been through my fair share of trauma. (laughs) Lonnie and I have been through a lot of stuff. And they never really go super far into it. But it's just kind of this funny little thing of like, oh, yeah. So they are the same characters of the last one. It's just after she did all of this and she survived all of this, she just becomes like a bored housewife next door who's just... (laughs) Yeah, I just kind of hang around and do my thing.
1: Which so just is to re- just to recap for everybody, so Silent Night Deadly Night four, it it does. We're not really giving away the mechanics of the ending, but as Tim had just alluded to, the lead lady does escape with a kid that, that was supposed to have been killed, sacrificed, and it doesn't work out that way. This series has thrown continuity out the window, but it seems obsessed with somehow trying to make certain connections still there, like it makes the weirdest choices for what could be continuity, but it isn't really, it's like almost there because there's even a couple of moments in the flashbacks that comprise most of part two where certain people are recast, like just in a couple little shots that make no (laughs) sense. So the whole thing, if you are still with us, if you're doing a marathon, Four might have sounded like all the havoc and craziness that you could handle, but I do think five trumps it like big time. I think
2: five, five has is the energy of like
1: a full moon production. Yeah. But yeah, this one, Silent Night, Deadly Night five, the toy maker is directed by a totally different guy, Martin Kitrosser. Welcome to the shop of Joe Petto. Here, you'll find the most amazing gadgets on earth.
2: Each toy is unique.
3: What a terrible accident. Sarah, you think this is an accident? Look.
2: Each specially designed by the craftsman himself.
0: Fuck, where did all, where did all these toys come from? Sarah, what do you know about that old guy from the toy store? What if I told you he was arrested for maiming some
2: kids several
0: years ago? What reason could he have to hurt innocent children?
2: Joe Petto always wanted a real boy from the producer of Bride of Reanimator.
0: I want my boy! What are you done with him?
2: With special effects by Screaming Mad George Inc. of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 comes the most incredible night yet. Mickey Rooney stars in Silent
1: Night Deadly Night 5: The Toymaker.
0: Merry Christmas.
1: He has not made much in, in the past and I don't think he's made much since because he's followed up when a you year have the later. Maker. 1991. I yeah. can easily say The Toymaker is his best movie.
2: <laughs> which so yeah so we have a couple return characters that we mentioned neath hunter is kim and actually uh the child Lonnie from the fourth one is conan Yusna related Brian to his son yeah yeah so which i think it, it, he was in this he was in four and he was in society but he returns as Lonnie. but they're like again side characters because the main thing is following uh jane higginson as sarah and her son and he is traumatized from this toy that killed his father and he's now yeah, it, show,
1: it shows up on the doorstep christmas yeah. oh it, you know what one thing uh, before we get deep into this they do fold they they i shouldn't say fold as much as force they force christmas in to the fourth movie it, it actually is all taking place christmas eve is is when yeah. four takes place uh but i do feel that they almost like folded that into the film after the fact This one, the Toymaker, it also doesn't feel like Christmas. There's no snow or anything, but it is leading up to Christmas. I think it's three or four days prior to Christmas is when the movie starts. Which I think that four has the
2: energy of like all those Hellraiser films that weren't originally a Hellraiser script. And then they were like throw some Cenobites in this, and it's now yeah. part of the Hellraiser franchise.
1: So it's sort of the Halloween, it's the Halloween three of the Silent Night franchise. I mean, actually, um, I guess they
2: did that better than the Halloween series of, they went off the rails and decided to
1: do completely unrelated yeah. things. and They just kept going off of the rails. Um, um, but what's good about this one is, you know, the initial death Tim's talking about. I mean, you have a a kid who's told to go up to bed Because of this package that arrives. And the father, who just had sex with his mom, is uh, opening up the package on his own. And it's this weird, almost a phantasm-esque red ball. Yeah. And it turns into a killer Santa toy that wraps these tendrils around the dad's face and murders him. And, of course, the young kid was being like any young kid and not really going to his room. And he was hiding up at the top of the steps and saw this. Um. So now the little guy doesn't talk at all, like at all. He is just silent as silent gets, but he makes a ton of lip movements. <laughs> he makes a lot of facial expressions and a lot of frowns. He's doing his best. Um, yeah. So the mother ends
2: up getting word that, you know what, maybe cheer him up with some toys. Um, She should get something for him for Christmas. There's the, the local toy store that she knows.
1: And uh, who runs that toy store, Mike? It's run. It's run by a fictional character named Joe. Uh, Joe Petto, Petto's Toys. <laughs> now, I have to be clear that it's Petto, P-E-T-O. P-E-T-O. Because if you were hearing me say Pedo, P-E-D-O, that would be a terrible name to name a toy yes, shop. Yeah, it's a terrible um, choice. Yeah. But for... it, it is Joe Pedo, which is awfully similar to Joe from Pinocchio fame. But the craziest part is that the character is played with relish by a gentleman named Mickey fucking Rooney. A longtime yeah, fan of yeah, the yeah, Mickey Rooney. Yeah, not 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 a different Mickey Rooney, but the Mickey Rooney that despised Silent Night Deadly Night enough to make a big stink about it publicly somehow had to swallow every fucking bit of pride he had. He must have needed the paycheck. He's great in the role. I love him in it. I couldn't imagine anyone else. But it's got to take balls to star in a series that you that you like were against. to that level,
2: I guess, in his defense. The series he took part in was no longer the series from the first movie by that point. That's true. So he's probably like, it's so far removed. It's Theseus's ship. It's like, it's. I'm not in the same franchise now.
1: But is there any Killer Santa flashback footage cut into this anywhere? Are they watching it on TV somewhere?
2: So actually, there is footage of four in this okay. one. Um, So no Killer Santa, but we just get... An- <laughs> initiation which i guess even weirder especially since characters from initiation are still in this well um, tim
1: does does joe peto have a son
2: ah uh, he he does he has a a helper at his shop a young pino pino they're
1: like joe peto and pino pinocchio pinocchio <laughs> i see what they're doing there that's pretty clever <laughs> so yeah so we have
2: uh old joe running this toy shop that she goes into and she talks with him about getting some toys for her son and Pino kind of creeps her out uh because he's kind of pushing all these toys on her of oh you should get this you should get this and then kind of drives her away which of course Joe then decides he's going to beat the
1: piss out of Pino, <laughs> beat the piss out of Pino. <laughs> but oh the the best part of the sequence though is like so uh, Pino pushes this toy on somebody. So the best part of the scene is that a drifter, some, some mysterious guy, we don't know who he is, except that he's got like a cool guy haircut and he's wearing like a, a military olive drab jacket. He slipped into the toy shop, uh, unnoticed and he's looking around and he's piling up his hands with a whole bunch of toys. And, um, and while he's doing that, that's when the sequence happens where the, the mother leaves with the kid and Joe turns evil and starts berating Pino. And all the while, this guy is standing in there and they don't know it. So as soon as as um, as soon as he sees him, as soon as uh, Mickey Rooney sees him, he tries to put on the charm again and, and be like, oh, oh, it's uh, nice to meet you. You'd like to buy some toys. And so the guy buys a bunch of toys. And as he's leaving, he's got, what is the name of that toy? Oh, Larry the Larva! Oh my God! Another screaming mad George creation. It's uh, Larry the Larva, is a ridiculously low rent looking, um, larva in a package, and um, which.
2: Isn't so the larva? I think is the toy version of the thing
1: that Clint Howard pulls out of the vent in the fourth movie. It's again another one of these weird continuity tie-ins that aren't. Is it? It's not actually continuity, but it's tied in somehow. Yeah. So who is this guy, Tim? Who's this mysterious stranger with the olive drab jacket? This mysterious stranger
2: happens to be. Uh, the son Derek's actual father <gasps> there was uh, who has disappeared for a while because he didn't know he had a son and he was, I think it was in the military, but the, he ends up finding out about all this. Um, about there's issues with the toy store. There's other things going on. So he has to come back once he realized they were there and he has to try to warn the kid and he has to try to get back involved with the mother because he feels he has to protect them. But he's working as a mall Santa yeah. Um, during this time and his co-worker is Clint Howard once again yes. playing Ricky, uh, but I guess not Ricky from the fourth one no. because Ricky from the fourth one is not in the fifth and one, Ricky so. from
1: the fourth one is not Ricky from the second or third one. That's just a coincidental name match. He's not Ricky. the killer yeah. Santa. He's just named Ricky. Yeah, he's just Ricky a mall Santa. Yeah, what's really odd about this movie because again, the tone is all over the place but i don't know if tim will agree with me the filmmakers work really hard to frame the drifter as a as a dangerous negative presence and there are yeah. moments where he's in he's he's actually next to or even talking to the mom but they make the mom there's the moment where he confronts her in uh in the parking garage and She's like scared of him and starts running away. So you're watching this as a viewer being like, who is this mysterious guy who's trying to track this lady down? Who's running for her life. And then seconds later they're making out kissing and she's like, I didn't know. I didn't realize. And I'm like, how did you not recognize this She's guy? Near sighted. It, it was so bizarre. <laughs> it's like, you're forcing a narrative that isn't really there. Like it, it yeah. was a weird feeling. So we find out that he uh, wasn't aware
2: he had a son and he came back. And now that he's reconnected with her, it's well, um, what do I say to your son? How do I explain this to Derek? Well, he's a smart boy. <laughs> He'll understand. That's, that's an we'll exact quote. too. You that's what she says. Like, to him. Hey, uh, by the way, um, the father you saw die, actually, it wasn't your father. Uh, I screwed up. Uh, here's
1: your real father. And since you saw your dad die and it put so much traumatic shit on you that you don't speak, now I'm going to let you know that this nice man here is your real dad. We're sure that'll get you talking <laughs> again. You'll you'll be good. <laughs> and he can die any moment. But
2: no, so we're treated to kind of a series of encounters throughout the, the film of the child uh, being deathly afraid of these toys because he's seen what they can do. And all of these mishaps of somebody bringing these toys there, or kind of getting these toys to them that he ends up throwing them out. And then maybe somebody else takes that toy instead. And it, turns into like a death machine of these kind of like killer toys situations. Yeah, The
1: movie is truly concerned with and about killer toys. I mean, that, that is the brunt, how the previous one was about a cult and all this weird, you know, maggoty shit. This is all about like, oh, here's rollerblades that have like rockets in them that are just going to shoot this kid randomly down the street, you know, that kind of stuff. Did you enjoy the uh the toy carnage? Did did you like the oh, yeah. the ludicrousness of them all?
2: Yeah. I mean it felt very like I grew up watching um like Toy Man or Demonic Toys and like the I prefer the later puppet masters where yeah. they become good and face off against the demonic Puppets. What about the Little
1: Strike? Did you enjoy that one? The, I didn't see that. That's one. the most recent um, <laughs> one.
2: You could <can> get that on <laughs> that, that's a whole nother anatomy of a franchise. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, but it felt very much in that vein of these. It's very hokey, but yeah. very fun toys of just these little things of, oh, it's a car. Wait, it's a car with two saw blades and then like a piercer. And then all of a sudden there's claws to attach to you right. and kill you. And it's all of these wacky things. And they never that I think they, they never fun. really
1: try to hide that Joe Petto is, is the one making these things. They make it pretty clear. Yeah. But what's laughable is these are killer toys that like Joe Petto could never pull off. I mean the, the way that they'd go about their business, like there's a plane that flies around and like shoots little missile, like missiles yeah. at people. And it's like, He's not they never there's no logic to the latter part of of the Silent Night series. And there's not like an establishing shot of maybe Joe Petto outside the window of a room, you know, with with a little uh, RC controller, maybe (laughs) controlling this plane. Now, all of a sudden, it's just a plane that starts dive bombing and chasing after people. And there's these tanks there's a moment where this like sultry uh, babysitter and her goofball boyfriend—they're having like your standard romp uh, in their underwear together. They're they're like yeah. petting, heavy petting, or something in in the kids' bedroom, and they get attacked by these very <laughs> Tim the rubber snake. <laughs> Everyone listening has seen a rubber snake in a cardboard bin at a toy store. There's no. There's nothing articulated about it. It is just a rubber snake. But there's a rubber snake in this movie that somehow Joe Pettos put his evil into and it moves on its own with the googly eyes. And it like starts it wraps itself around this chick's wrists so she can't break free. And I'm watching this movie like where's like there's no reason that this would work. Yeah, it felt or like he has a... like
2: little green army men yeah. who it's like, clearly they are too small to have any sort of you mechanical mechanisms workings in. in them in 1991. But for some reason, they're able to like, move around and navigate and get at targets and things. I mean, at one point, like somebody gets like a hole blown in their chest. And I think, oh, man, they're dead. And then all of a sudden they'll get up and they'll start running around. And it's like, wait, so what are they shooting them yeah, it's with? Like paper it's like,
1: wads, like little bits of yeah. plastic pellets. But it's like, oh,
2: is it just a lot of blood, but they're just like not really that injured? I
1: think um, all we're saying is that like, you know, Puppet Master, there's a supernatural element. So you buy it, you know, but there's no yeah. supernatural element to this film. They want you to accept that an old man who looks like he'd barely fix a transistor radio has somehow been like creating these evil toys. Cause he's the toy maker,
2: you know? So yes, I think five goes in a very different direction from four, but five is it's fun. It's a who it's all what you would want as a kid growing up of like, Oh, this is the movie I run in. And I like, we, Oh, we were allowed to rent Silent Night Deadly Night 5, but not from even the normal video store. It was like the video section of my supermarket right. that they happened to have. Like, it's these weird things that slip through
1: the cracks over time. But the key thing is, it delivers, and by the end, we will not spoil the last act of what transpires, but you do get to see... A really, really cool Screaming Mad George full body effect, like beyond just a toy, you're actually getting to see like a crazy concept that's brought to life. And it's brought to life pretty well, considering how low the budget was for this. And anyone who loves Hellraiser, the first Hellraiser, you guys will remember that really low rent attempt at lightning. Um, when the Cenobites are sent back to hell, there's the good kind of optical uh, lightning stuff that you see in Big Trouble in Little China and Ghostbusters. And then there's the low rent version that's just like makes you laugh because it's so great. They they incorporate some of that into this, too. So I feel like the ending, um, the ending leaves you with like a really cool visual thing that you'll always connect to this movie that I think is a is a, a fun way to end
2: it. <laughs> So, Mike, the series ended at five. It truly did. For ages until the kind of sort of remake.
1: In 2012. In 2012.
2: Yeah. Um, Which they just, in, in 2012 fashion, they knocked off the Deadly Night and it's just Silent Night now. I heard this story. This fella dressed as Santa.
0: He said about killing them that was naughty. Creep every year, a new town.
3: Everyone knows that story.
0: It's an urban legend. Mm-hmm. Christmas, the number one holiday for people going nuts.
3: Listen, we've got a lead on our killer from the motel. He's wearing a Santa suit and a mask.
0: Christmas Eve is the scariest damn night of the year.
1: This almost didn't even get Well, we put it in because we're completists. But like Tim said, they drop Deadly Night, and it really is a straightforward slasher that's just, you know, centered around kills and people you don't like that get killed. So it's almost not really a remake. I mean, there is no orphanage. There's no—it doesn't really pull any of, like, the Billy stuff that would make it feel like it was an actual remake or a reboot, but— you know, it is enough of a silent night movie. It it should be yeah. in here.
2: Yeah. Like it, it plays it very loose. I think it was, they probably figured we can't do the exact same thing. So they touch on enough stuff here and there of like the, Oh, it's the passed down trauma that drives people to things and all this other stuff that ends up landing in this. But I think it's, for all of its faults cuz it's all over the place yeah. i think it's a very cynical mean-spirited yeah. <laughs> like slasher um we we could I, be real it,
1: here if you want if you want to watch something for gore like this is a you know or like creative kills that are nasty this is a good choice it's a different yeah. it doesn't fit the tone of any of the other series, even though those are all wildly different, they're all nostalgic and and they they were all made between the 80s and the and the mid-90s. So it has that time capsule feel. This one, did you notice, Tim? They go they go whole hog with Christmas decorations and lights and the feel, but it's kind of missing the snow especially when it's like Wisconsin, you would imagine it would be very wintry. It's missing the winter, but it does fill that void of if you, if you're a voracious horror fan that wants as much killer Santa as you can find, this is a, a this fits the bill. Yeah.
2: And I, I think it's a fun Malcolm McDowell as a terrible, I think he's the police chief, but it's yeah, this really weird role for Michael, or for Malcolm McDowell of, He's like this macho character, which is a weird <laughs> yeah. thing for him. I just of think of like the caller. He's the, yeah. Uh, like, we're going to stop this guy and his. Uh, we're going to stop Carson. Well, sir, it's actually with two S's. But this follows is S's, Jamie King. double Th- This whole thing yeah. is
1: around. A, she's a deputy? I think she's a deputy. I haven't yeah, seen and this like one her. And like, her
2: father way. was on the force years ago, and now he's retired, and he's going to be one of the, the Santas in the big parade, and she's kind of not loving the whole being a cop thing because she feels like she doesn't have what it takes to really kind of do the job. But then it's this Santa Claus killer who's going around town picking people off, which everybody in this town is like, for the most part, truly vile. There's really like, they really lean into the, well, if they're not likable, you're going to cheer when they die. Yeah, Nobody's safe. And I almost (laughs) think that,
1: you know, I mean, again, we talked about none of these films are like, Perfectly put together. I, I do think the original is still it's all the right amounts of everything to make it its own, like sort of standout mini classic. And yeah. this one, it it really does deliver in the violence department. And it's it's pretty I don't know. I I feel like it's pretty well shot. It's not high end looking, but it doesn't look cheap, like super cheap. So it's got it's got enough to offer for an hour and a half. I mean,
2: I I think it's it's definitely one of those things that if you liked a lot of the slashers that came out around this time, like the My Bloody Valentine 3Ds and things like that, where it's I just want something that is gory, but kind of slightly nostalgic for either a, a holiday or for like something I grew up on because it's a semi remake. I think it's a perfectly fine movie to rent. You don't need to necessarily own it, but I think it's not one that I would pass up if somebody was like, I'm going to throw in Silent Night. Yeah, I'll, I'll sit down. I'll watch it with you. Yeah, it's worth
1: watching. And I think uh, Donald Logue is in it. Yeah, he yeah. plays Santa Jim. I remember, um, I remember him. As
2: this like super cynical <laughs> Santa who has a kid on his lap and tells him, like, uh, so... Your gifts are going to be put on eBay by your parents because (laughs) nobody truly loves you and the world is terrible and Santa doesn't exist.
1: Um, Oh, the cynicism of 2012.
2: And we actually get Ellen Wong, um, who played in Scott Pilgrim as Knives Chow. But I remember also her showing up in The Void. So it was just kind of interesting seeing her in The Void and her in Silent Night as essentially a similar role of... Oh, you just work the desk as the operator at the police station. Oh, you just work the desk yeah. as one of the nurses. At- but I do
1: remember, um, I think when we covered The Void, I gave her a special shout out as I thought with her small role, she she was one of the most natural, believable characters. Like she, oh, yeah. she a, brought it's it. It's the same yeah. case here. Yeah. She stands out as is really good in this too. Because honestly, I think acting performance wise, I feel like... Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, and probably the remake of Silent Night. Those are some pretty stilted performances in both of those movies, especially three. It's hard to wrap your head around that. The performances in in Initiation, some of them are great and some of them are lacking, but they kind of equal each other out. And I really love the performances of, of Mickey Rooney and Pino. Uh, the actor who plays Pino—he's Pino, super good, in a corny way. His name's Brian Bremer. He was in *Spontaneous Combustion*, which is a great Toby Hooper movie. He also is the kid in *Pumpkinhead*, not the little kid who gets killed, but the um, the kind of Appalachian teenage kid. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's him. He's sort of a chameleon in the movies he's been in. Apparently, he went on to be sort of like a like a an alternative punk kind of musician he's in a band or something he left acting to be in a in in music huh. from what i recall um but yeah i mean come on man it's silent night deadly night as a series does not get enough love and when people list their franchises there's a bunch of franchises they list that i think are less fun i would rather watch all of these movies in a row than the paranormal activity movies with things like that. I just think this is way more fun.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the the thing with the Silent Night series is something we've said before is you don't have to be good, just don't be boring. Exactly. Um and I think that's definitely
1: the case with this series. So with that in mind, Tim, let's put a bow on yeah, it. Yeah, and we're still we're still in a festive mood and uh we appreciate all the listeners that listen all year round. We appreciate them very much so much so that we're thankful for them. So what we've tacked on to kind of really bolster this episode and make it a festive episode, me and Tim teamed up with, uh, with Kristen and we went and saw Thanksgiving from Eli Roth. I think the night before Thanksgiving, we went around, it was around that time, our friends, Bill and Wendy came as well. And, uh, we, we did a quick uh, little immediate conversation that we're going to tack on to this episode to give you guys an extra dose of holiday fright.
2: Okay, over to us.
1: This year, there will be no leftovers. Don't open this podcast holiday newsflash. It is officially... November 23rd, 1257. We are minutes away from Thanksgiving, the actual day. And myself, along with Tim and...
3: Kristen, how long?
1: Just got out of Eli Ross' Thanksgiving. So we thought, what better time to record an impromptu review of Thanksgiving than right now?
2: A movie that we've been waiting for since the Grindhouse fake trailer. What was that, 2007? I'm thinking 16 years ago.
1: Yeah. Because it occurred to me that someone that was born when Grindhouse came out could have a driver's license now, which made me feel very old. Oh,
2: yeah. Which I guess, so originally they were talking about how this isn't exactly the same as the trailer only because they wanted to create this like fake lore of the trailer was to a movie that got destroyed and everybody was left the industry or disappeared and nobody was ever able to be contacted again. So the trailer was the only thing that survived. And then this is, what if we did a reboot of that movie without actually doing that movie? And I think, honestly, I dig it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. For people that don't know, Grindhouse the movie is the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino double feature that is a throwback in feeling and tone to Grindhouse Cinema. And we did get Machete and Machete Kills based on one of those trailers. yeah. So Thanksgiving, I actually think, was probably one of my favorites. That one in Don't, I thought those I was, were I great. I was just about to
2: say, can yeah. we get Don't next? If there's one film you see this summer, Don't. Don't, don't,
1: don't. <laughs> um, But anyway, so yeah, we saw it. And my expectations got weirdly high as I was approaching going to see it. I kind of wanted to see it opening night, but Tim said he was coming in from Massachusetts, so I happily waited. But then I had friends shooting me texts. Dude, did you see Thanksgiving? It was fucking good. And I was like, I, not yet, but I want to.
2: I mean, I left Massachusetts to come to Connecticut to watch a movie about Massachusetts. (laughs) Yeah, that is funny. The entire time I'm listening, they're talking about like Hanover and Plymouth and like Methuen and all these things. And it's. Yeah, they have like (laughs) accents that are fleeting where you'll have one guy who's like, the guy from Hanover. And he has the very thick accent, but nobody else does from that crowd. (laughs) Patrick Dempsey is the sheriff having a very floating accent where it's just, Hints of words
1: Otherwise known as The sexiest man alive Yeah, yeah was he McDreamy Or McSteamy I don't McDreamy. know but I He was McDreamy but it, it, it was McDreamy. just happened Like a week ago <laughs> like we have a professional It was either People yeah. Or Time One of the oh, People well, magazine Oh
3: you Do not understand The the level of McDreaminess From Grey's Anatomy
1: I don't Because I never Watched that show
3: I started re-watching it But not actually Sitting down uh, Mike knows this I get a lot of clips Of shows on TikTok So I end up Just watching like <laughs> Sped through episodes Episodes of like different Grey's Anatomy.
1: <laughs> so you watched like a McDreamy mega clip, like best of. Clip, no, so or... it
3: goes through each episode. So like the person will come in shot or with an illness. It's never something basic. I don't know. There's a bomb episode. There it, hospitals do not run the way Grey's Anatomy runs. Okay. Um so I go through it, and then I just want to find out what happened with that pregnant lady who had a tumor or something. So and you then you really
1: have watched Grey's Anatomy in a sped up TikTok y type of way.
3: Yeah, and the parts that, are never weird. are cohesive. Quibi was right. like... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Quibi but he lives I feel like he's the biggest name in this yeah I, I, I feel like because most of the people i didn't recognize there's a dad in this movie the main dad <laughs> yeah. do you know
2: who i mean i'm just surprised because i'm so used to him playing like the smarmy like entertainment agent or lawyer or smarmy like... is the immediate word that comes yeah. to mind when i think of where i him. think oh he God. might be the sweetest guy in real life i, I don't I know. think he was in the movie cellular with chris evans years ago and he has to like steal a car and he kicks him out of his like convertible and he's still on his car phone but i i'm so used to him being like a cad in all of his roles that it's like okay he's actually not terrible in this yeah, mm. he has
1: like a moral compass yeah as the movie progresses which
2: i'm i'm glad because it's like they play into like it's a comedy but it's a straight slasher so for anybody that was interested yeah, we're in doing
1: our usual but yeah let's tell because we're not going to get spoilery we're just going to highlight what we liked and maybe didn't love about the movie in general. So take it away.
2: Uh, so directly out of the theater, I currently don't have any gripes with the film. I would um, agree. It is something that I thought, like, it, I already came into it with low expectations only because I don't standardly like Eli Roth. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, I like him. I just don't like his movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I love like his history of horror and all that kind of stuff. But I was expecting it to be much kind of cruder, and I think the comedy lands in a very, like, black comedy way.
1: In a subtle way. Yeah. There's a few things that are way intentional and, and like, goofy. Yeah. Like a person wearing a turkey outfit being beheaded. That is, like, in-your-face comedy. But there's some really subtle comedy that I thought was very good.
2: Yeah, or the whole thing with, like, social media and whatnot. Yeah. I think this movie does a better job of kind of having a kind of cynical view on anything better than Scream thought it did. Scream 7, the mm-hmm. new ones, not the original, but, like, the current
1: ones. I like Thanksgiving more than Scream 6 and oh, 5. 6, yeah. Yeah, I do. But I don't know, like, you guys need to know going in, like, Act 1 is sort of a dark comedy on retail. If you think of the opening of Krampus, take that opening of Krampus and make the opening of Thanksgiving that, but much darker, much bloodier, and much more grand scale. Act two is a full tilt homage to, I want to say, 80s slashers, not 90s. I think a lot of people are going to compare this to Scream, but that's kind of fucked up because Scream was a new riff on 80s slashers. And I think knowing Eli Roth's taste the way I do, he's been very open about his taste. I think he was leaning more towards blue collary, like My Bloody Valentine original. It felt more like My Bloody Valentine, especially with a love triangle between a boyfriend who leaves, a boyfriend who moves in on the girl that lives there, and the girl kind of being angry at both of them because they both act like dicks. That was very My Bloody Valentine. Mm. So then act two turns into act three, which I think is more of an Eli Rothy hostile type of third act, but better. Not, it's not that crass, Yeah. but it ends up becoming um, kind of like a, I think some people are going to think of it as a jigsaw thing. There ends up being something that involves a the killer using a voice modulation that I think might unfairly make people say, oh, it was like jigsaw. But it's not really, it's still more of a stage fright well, pl- yeah, Euro, like revenge or like movie. like Scream
2: beat Jigsaw yeah. to the punch on voice modulation that's, anyway. That's very true. Uh, but I guess also I have to go back and watch the original trailer from the 2007 one, because I guess that was the modulation that matches the voice of oh, Eli Roth okay, doing okay. the narration of the trailer.
1: Like stuffing people. Yeah. No, yeah. No leftovers. No leftovers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I the, did. The music from that trailer is the Creepshow music, by the way. If ah. you go back and listen to it, it's immediately recognizable as the Creepshow score. What were you going to say? Oh, I
3: was going to say, I did get a hint of I Know What You Did last summer, but hmm. that might have just been the parade scene,
1: because... That is true. true. Yeah. yeah. But there's a lot of slashers that have parade scenes. Not a ton, mm. but there are a few where there's like a, a parade of people yeah. with shit going down in it. Um, But I, I got a lot of like graduation day and a, a lot of those old school yeah. slashers. Well, um,
2: There's probably. so many bits that I feel like it's not rips of anything. It's just putting little nods yeah. into mm-hmm. things of like the, the very opening shot of you have like the point of view shot. That's slightly <laughs> wavering yeah. from like the foot of the, the yard <laughs> looking at the entry to the house as yeah. it's walking up. and It's like, Okay, so right off the jump, we're doing Halloween, and then it goes into everything else.
1: But also, that's the thing with Eli Roth. Like, I know you said you're not a big fan. My thing with Eli Roth, and I want you to weigh in on this too, because I know you love all sorts of movies. I think that Eli Roth is the better equivalent of Rob Zombie to me, in my little microcosm of my world, because Rob Zombie loves many of the same films and actors as I do, and so does Eli Roth. But I think Eli Roth has more raw talent and he also is more open to handing reins over to other people to help make his films better. And he oftentimes pisses me off and goes in a direction in a movie that annoys the shit out of me and makes me not love the movie. But kind of if I look at his his whole repertoire of films, I thought Cabin Fever was really good. And I think that Green Inferno is a very entertaining rehash of cannibal Holocaust films. And I also think that he brings like a style to his movies because hostile is something that I appreciate more when I rewatch it because it kind of got, I think, thrown into it was the villain that caused torture porn. I hate the term torture yeah. porn, and I don't think Hostel one or two is in any way torture porn. I think it's a cool story and it's disgusting and it gets under your skin, but there's artistic merit in it. So even when Roth has a misfire, I find that there's something to be gained entertainment wise from it. And I kind of would have to say that Thanksgiving is the closest he's come to a great film where I'm like proud of him Mm. and happy that (laughs) he reeled himself in and made a, it's kind of crazy that it took him this long to make a balls-out slasher, but he finally did, and I think it's one of his best movies, if not his best movie. I don't know how you guys feel on that.
3: I was going to say, I can't touch on it too, too much, especially, I know we're not talking about Rob Zombie, but from the mailbag episode, I've still been slacking, have not seen a Rob Zombie <laughs> film. Um and although I know of Eli Roth, I've watched a few of, like, because he had that documentary thing where he just talked about yeah, the horror yeah. movies. And like you can loved. see so that, I know he, loves, that. Yeah. he loves horror. Um, he really does. And so I know of Cabin Fever and Hostel and everything, but I haven't actually sat and watched. Um, but I know he is pretty fun.
1: I feel like he usually gets too sophomoric in what he's presenting, and it bothers me because if you toned it down a little, yeah. it would be awesome. And he kind of achieved that, I loved so much of Thanksgiving. I was like totally along for the ride. Mm. Um, there were moments where I actually wanted him to somehow maybe go further.
3: We we yeah. briefly, before yeah. we we said we would stop talking about the movie. When we, were we were trying not to ruin car. it on the yeah. ride. <laughs> so.
1: um,
3: because I, I looked at Mike when we walked out of the theater and I was like, it was almost too much while I was sitting in my seat, but also not enough. Like I was expecting there to just be a little bit more, mm. but I'm not disappointed with what we got.
1: I think it's there's the least in the crescendo, like mm. the true end. Yeah. We're not gonna spoil that, of course, but the end end, I feel like when you watch a movie that, that amps up the kills and they're creative, yeah. something from like a final destination or something like that. Your your final kill is usually this grand scale stick-in-your-head kill. Yeah. And he went a different route with this that I also think was a nod, like Tim said. The movie has so many nods, but never ripoffs. It's always like I'm referencing this, but I'm doing a very different thing mm. with it. I think he was doing that particular ending to kind of fuck with the audience a little, yeah, to yeah. where you didn't know what was next, and it was sort of like the credits are next, oh, really, like really? yeah, that kind of thing so yeah,
2: yeah, I, I think. As far as asking for more of what we're expecting, especially with the original trailer, like the stuff that was in that, I think that was 2007, Eli Roth. Like, the whole...
1: Uh, everyone knows the trampoline girl landing in a split with a knife right up her vagina. That's what everyone yeah, remembers or from that like trailer.
2: The whole thing with the turkey yeah. and whatnot. Because we we're we not
1: spoiling We could... We could reference the trailer in as much yeah, detail yeah, you, as we you've were.
2: had a while to watch that yeah. trailer. Um, <laughs> 16 years. But yeah, I think that was a very different Eli Roth that now this was reined in a little more, and I think it got the exact amount that I wanted. Yeah. Because if it went any more, it would be a tougher thing for me to recommend to just like, hey, you like horror? You like slashers? Here, just watch this. Yeah. It would have to be a certain type of people mm. who like slashers. Mm-hmm. Where this, I'm just like, yeah, there's some like twisted stuff in this, but none of it is ends up coming across as too much to me. It yeah. just comes mm. across as like, even the worst stuff is kind of funny.
1: I think it pushes the envelope of what's acceptable as a slasher film. Yeah. It it doesn't ever step over it to where you're like, I'm not rolling with this now. Now it's too ludicrous mm. because anyone who watched the trailer knows that he's trying to craft a new slasher villain, John Carver, and he wears this- Carver kava you're kava. correct. If we're going with the accent, <laughs> um and we all know it's gonna be a human. Like, there's no, it's not an alien yeah. or a fucking zombie. A twist it you know, <laughs> would be a twist. So we, we, everyone knows going in, you're gonna watch a human being. It stretches the credibility of what this human could pull off because the kills are off the charts fun, like yeah. twisting people's heads off and shit. But if you made it any crazier. Then none of us would accept that one human being, because the middle of the film is a huge whodunit, like Mm. any good classic slasher from that era. So it's trying to stay in those confines. And I think it pushes it just to where you're almost like, come on, but but it never goes, it never becomes a parody. When it Mm. wants to be creepy and serious, it is. And when it wants to be like, we know you want to see someone's head split open, we're going to give it to you. And I'm like, cool, you're giving me kind of both of what I want. Yeah. And amazingly, you were talking about the Eli Roth difference in years. Mm -hmm. I think 2007 Eli Roth, every woman that was the core of that group would have been topless at some point. And there would have Mm. been a long, like, sex scene moment with a lot of dirty talk, because that's sort of like immature Eli Roth. There was not a lick of nudity in this film, not none. none. No. No no no, and I was surprised it by was that. It's a good Christian yeah. film.
3: <laughs> Almost disappointedly so. And and <laughs> I right. and if you watch it oh, you'll yeah. understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: There is <laughs> there is a centerpiece murder that I was really impressed by and really loved, and especially the concept. But there's a logical thing that comes into play that involves clothes. And Kristen and I talked about how we wanted this situation to involve a naked person, because it's technically correct. But we also understand why Eli Roth might have been like, let's leave clothes on it, because I really should. (laughs) And when you guys watch the movie, you'll know the scene we're talking about, where you're like, technically speaking, that person should be naked. But it's okay that they're not. He was probably um, like, "Let's tone it down." My yeah. mom's going to watch this. Yeah. It's like there's only so much you can do <laughs> it's before it's too movie. disgusting. Uh, yeah, um, but there's um,
3: some great kills, and yeah. I know I've talked about on here before. Some I have a favorite death and everything. Yeah, um, my we, favorite. And we know kill what,
1: is, what's one of those deaths. What's one uh, of uh, your death faves? By corn. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they kind of show this in the trailer, so. I think it's safe for you to talk about it.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. it's uh uh to to quote Wendy. Um... Oh yeah,
1: our friends Wendy and Bill <laughs> saw it with us, and they both gave it a thumbs up for turning your brain off and enjoying a good gory slasher. So yeah. that, that's from Wendy and Bill.
3: Because because we were talking about as somebody who has seen this movie and we've also watched Sleepwalkers together, is that um it's it's weird. Like if if I had a nickel for every time somebody died by the hands of corn-related things. Um, I would only have two nickels, but uh, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it happened twice.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, technically you'd have 15 cents. Oh, nickel, could, five, yeah, wait, no, two, sleep, it would be sleepwalkers ten. Sleepwalkers, and then, and then, you said a nickel, sleepwalkers, one, and then not oh, one ear of corn, but two ears of corn. Yeah, yeah, of corn. yeah. Cool. so, you know, I mean, that, that's that was the
3: only, to go back to my too much thing, it was more so, it, the movie wasn't too much, because I honestly, I told Mike, I was like, ah, oh, it's going to be dark, I'm going to be spooked. If we go like yeah, late I at knew night. You um, but there were a few scenes, and that was being one of them. That it was more of like like a like that was the best <laughs> way. Like out of years, I don't know if you saw. Like I would kind of like duck down at certain parts, yeah, like the, the anticipation. Um, but more like what I can compare to the cheese grater scene in a uh, Evil Dead Rise. Yeah, yeah.
1: And see, I wanted more of that.
3: Yeah, that well, I will. I
1: because it was just a one pull. I'm like, give me a couple. If you got a trailer. cheese grater, yeah, you need yeah. to grate. Yeah. But this has, I mean, Tim, have you seen a movie more bloody in a theater in a while? Because this is right up there with with The Evil Dead, yeah, The I, Last I would say Evil so. Dead, and I think all of which it is
2: bloody, like we said, all of the stuff as bloody as it is or as gory as it is, even when it's startling, everything directly followed with like a laugh from the group, just because it's so. Ridiculous yeah. sometimes of the like the parade and what is a dark of, comedy ones that it just like you don't is. even expect because yeah. it's like oh just somebody else dies who's not affiliated with anything that's going on right now and it's just out of left <laughs> yeah. field uh, yeah
1: the, he really comes up with some pretty brilliant ways to put extra deaths in yeah because from the trailer you know that it's like the killer is targeting a group of friends but there's so many other extra people yeah. that get killed in the midst of yeah. it all. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, I had fun with it. I kept glancing over and seeing smiles on everyone's face that I was with, Mm. so that was a good thing too.
3: And I think it was refreshing too to go to you know a bigger movie. Oh, I guess Evil Dead Rise didn't have that many big big names in it, but even like we said, there wasn't a lot of people. I actually I told Mike this. I recognized one of the actors in it. Um, yeah, and you guys can't judge me this because this is a guilty pleasure. All right, um, the new boyfriend, not the ex boyfriend, in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, ryan i think his character name is uh the actor is milo something and i know him as a zombie from the hit disney channel original movies zombies um (laughs) which i didn't even know
1: existed (laughs) didn't even know this is a thing
3: (laughs) a newer like they came out when i was in college and i had sat my friends down when the sequel came out and i was like guys this is good i promise like there's some bops um <laughs> just...
2: I thought you were going to mention that the security guard in the beginning is Derek the vampire from What We Do in the Shadows. No shit. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's a good thing to. I'm checking that off. Yeah, good well, eyes. I think Mitch good is, eyes. There
3: is uh, Benny from uh, Supernatural, who's also a vampire. Oh.
2: So a lot vampire? of people that we weren't expecting in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I my main gripe with the film is it takes place in Massachusetts, and I didn't see one Duncan.
1: Not a single Duncan. <laughs>
2: They might have it wasn't reached like, out, and the then, killer's coming out. We got to meet up and form a planet. Dunks, <laughs> yeah.
3: just a lot of shaken ice. Just in there.
1: <laughs> but yeah. All in all, I mean, I think everyone had a ball with it. Mm. I agree. There's some really crazy kills in it. For people that are easily disturbed, I think you probably won't be because the kills happen. I don't want to say abruptly because they're not abrupt, but most of them happen without a lot of. Uh, terrifying leading up to it it's like he's there he fucking kills you and you're dead it isn't like you're going to be seeing a texas chainsaw remake kind of deal where Mm. someone's screaming their lungs out for 20 minutes while their friends try to save them from being skinned alive it isn't that it really is a pure slasher movie Mm. and that's really what impressed me about it so good job eli roth Make more movies like that. I'm totally down for
2: it. I, I don't even know if I would want a Thanksgiving sequel in this universe or if it's just like, you did it, you nailed it, it's yeah. 100% first time. The yeah. only
3: sequel I will accept is if he goes the non-human route for The Killer. Make it full, like still still dark comedy, uh, still gory, but more heavy comedy and The Killer is actually a turkey. Um, And I want a distant gurgle, or like a like a little like voice modulated like, oh, like, like gobble gobble yeah yeah that's uh. what I like before each kill uh.
1: there's really nothing wrong with that
2: that, <laughs> that could be I say he turns this into an anthology yeah. and every Thanksgiving he releases a different story in the
1: universe mm. and then John Carpenter just loses oh, it somewhere <laughs> Kristen you could pen like a synopsis of that Yeah, send it to Troma and before you oh, know good. it yeah, you, yeah. M- you yeah. might have a story by Kristen Plouffe <laughs> On on this film,
3: and I would put in the notes Death that gobble. I have to uh, part of my contract Played is I get to do all the gobbles. Sure, it yeah, yeah.
1: works. And there has to be corn in it. Yeah, somewhere. yeah. <laughs> Actually, aren't you cooking for tomorrow? We're keeping you out late because it's.
3: I you know. I said yeah, yeah. I gotta be. I gotta be up early to what, cook. So okay. What are you so, cooking tomorrow? Um, technically, they're mashed rutabagas, which I just recently <laughs> found out. But OK, here's the thing is I'm going solely off of memory as a child in Google to figure out what mash turnips my Nana used to make last year. Turns out um, there's only one kind of turnip and they're white. And my brother-in-law and I were, were peeling them in the morning and I was like, this doesn't look right. And I was hoping they would turn yellow when they cooked. They didn't. Um. So this more. Uh, this year I spent a lot of time on Google in the grocery store. Um, to figure out they're in the same family, but rutabagas are the orange ones, and they're a bit of a sweeter turnip taste. It's straight from Google, right. and they're they're bigger. So yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. And if this was in Boston, those would be rutabagas. Yeah, you I mean, would have no R,
0: right?
3: Rutabagas. Ut- 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 Utabagas? Uta, I, Uta I, I don't think they drop R- the R if R- it starts R- with an R. No, okay. it's
1: rutabaga. Ba- bag, a bag up. up. Something
3: yeah. Like Some, that. Yeah. I don't know. No. It's perfect. We could fit in with the movie. We're a part of Boston now. We say it the same way.
1: So, yeah, everyone should go see Thanksgiving <laughs> in the movie theater. Yeah. And I sincerely hope that when the, the physical media release comes out, I would love for Roth to like put out the film and then an alternate version that's on the disc that's all scratched up and skippy and comes in and out of focus that would fit in with, oh, yeah. with the Grindhouse feel. Ah, yeah, Because yeah. yeah. I feel like Grindhouse, when it came out, spent a ton of money trying to get people to understand what it was going for in all of the promotion stuff. Because the average person would have been like, what the fuck, this movie's skipping and it's scratched. Mm. So they had to explain that it was like <laughs> a throwback to the wonder, wonderful days of Grindhouse. And I could see where maybe a company didn't even want to deal with that, like putting out yeah. Thanksgiving Why would you make it all scratchy and weird? But I think it would be a cool added feature on on Mm -hmm. the Blu-ray. But yeah, that's me signing off for Thanksgiving. I don't know about you guys.
3: Yeah, I recommend. Yeah, We all recommend.
1: recommend. We also recommend that, well, we hope that you had a great Thanksgiving. I was going to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving, (laughs) but it's not going to work out in the timing.
2: Because it's Thanksgiving now, and I will not have this episode released today. (laughs) 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 So, back to
1: the show. Yeah, back to whatever show we put this in. Yeah, yeah. So, hopefully you enjoyed that, and uh, as far as breaking news, uh, Eli Roth official on his Instagram, uh, let everyone know that a sequel is greenlit that he'll be directing, so if you go see Thanksgiving, um, I guess they're going back for seconds. If that's not on the poster, (sighs) (laughs) it better be. Until then, until our... Our uh, year in fear coming up. Where can people find us, Tim?
2: Oh, well, you can find us on Instagram at Don't Open This Podcast
1: or at Facebook at Don't Open This Podcast. And then there's our individuals. Tim's on Instagram at Mister Time, and I'm on Instagram at Art.
2: And you can always let us know your thoughts on any of the Silent Night series or just generally anything over at our email at Don't Open This Podcast at gmail.com.
1: And don't forget
2: our letterbox. Oh, also don't open this podcast. It is, especially leading up for the year in fair, it has been, like I said, easy to just do genre horror year 2023, and then just show me things that I haven't already watched on Letterboxd, and then list it as show me only things that are streaming on services I have. And then it's just hone right in on it because it's made it so much easier for me to just kind of do boom 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 and just blow through all of it
1: so it's a fun app and it's free yeah so until we do our year in fear for Mike and Tim and the don't open this podcast crew which really is just us and Kristen Ploof we'd like to wish all of you a very happy holiday regardless of what holiday you may celebrate even if it's none of them Stop it!